1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll read the first 12 verses. Please give your full attention to God's word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I had the opportunity in the last week or so to watch a couple of new movies that intrigued me. They're still in the theater. One of them is called The Darkest Hour, and it's about Winston Churchill and his first days as a prime minister in England during World War II. And the other movie is called The Post, which is about Catherine Graham and Ben Bradley. Catherine was the owner of the Washington Post, and Ben Bradley was uh, the editor. Um, at the Washington Post during the uh, days leading up to and during Watergate in the early 70s. And I mentioned these movies because I was struck by both of them in the sense that they're about leadership. They're about the struggle to be a strong leader in a time of crisis. And I think that our culture is really resonating with that right now because we long for strong leadership. And I do believe that we're in a leadership crisis and we've been in one for a while. I don't think there's ever been a time in this country, in this culture, where those who lead us, whether it be from the White House or the halls of Congress or the courts or the military or the police, or the business leaders on Wall Street, where there has never been a time where these leaders in all aspects of society are generally despised, ridiculed, disobeyed, and ignored. Now, lest you think I'm making some kind of a political or social movement on one side of the debate or other, I think there's blame on both sides. I think there is blame for this leadership crisis. There is certainly blame upon the leaders who lead poorly. Leaders who are selfish, leaders who sin, who fail, who are incompetent. But blame also is equally on the shoulders of those who are led. 
because it is our nature to seize and take advantage of moments of failure in leadership to ridicule and mock legitimate authority. Because we're born as rebels. We are born as people who are anti-authoritarian. We are born as people who want to do what we want to do, when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And so when our leaders fail us, we take advantage of the opportunity to our own selfish benefit and ridicule and reject leaders. And so we are in a particularly anti-authoritarian period of history in this culture because of this vicious cycle of the failure of both those who lead and those who are led. And as I look at history, there's usually only two possible outcomes when a leadership crisis is not addressed. Either the culture degenerates into anarchy to one degree or another, or the people begin to cry out for a strong tyrant to come in and restore order. I pray that God will be gracious to us and that we will see a revival and renewal in godly leadership, both in the church as in the world. Because as the culture goes, so goes the church. And we certainly have seen an increasing leadership crisis within the church. Priests are outed as pedophiles. Prosperity preachers beg for money all over the airwaves. Megachurch pastors build self-centered empires. Pastors fall into scandalous sin and then are returning to ministry within weeks or months sometimes. And people inside and outside the church selfishly seize the opportunity to ridicule and reject the authority of the leadership of the church. But the church needs godly leaders. And Christ intended to call faithful leaders to lead his church. Leaders who would follow his example as the good shepherd. But Jesus warned us from the beginning, before the church was even established, he warned us that there would be bad leaders. He warned us about false prophets in Matthew 7, when he said, beware of false prophets who will come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. These are the kind of leaders who add to the word of God or take away from the word of God in order to mislead and deceive the sheep to bring them into error and sin for their own selfish purposes. Then Jesus talked about in John chapter 10, he talked about thieves and robbers. Now, I'm sure there's overlap, but I'm not sure he doesn't mean some of the same people by these labels. But he calls bad leaders in John 10, he calls them thieves and robbers to bring out another element of what motivates these bad leaders. He says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. Thieves and robbers come to steal the glory of Christ, to steal the very people of Christ for their own glory and their own desire, their own aggrandizement. They steal glory from Christ at the expense of the sheep, of the church. And then also in John chapter 10, Jesus talked about hired hands. He says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. There are a lot of leaders in the church who are just hired hands 
They're there for the paycheck. They're there for the prestige. They're there for the security. They're there for themselves. And they don't truly care for the sheep. The church of Jesus Christ suffers when it's filled with false prophets, thieves, and hired hands. And the result is the sheep become spiritually weak, malnourished, rebellious, and disillusioned, and scattered. But bad leadership, obviously then, is nothing new. Jesus warned us from the beginning. And every century has seen the church suffer under bad leadership. In the first century, one of the issues that Paul had to deal with during his missionary journeys is that he would come into a new town, introduce himself to a new group of people, and preach the good news about Jesus Christ to those people. But just before him and just after him had come many traveling preachers, many traveling soothsayers, many traveling prophets who brought a new religion, a new philosophy, and promised all kinds of new cures and, and, and promised all kinds of prosperity. And they would take advantage of the people. They were like the, the old, old school snake oil salesmen. They'd come and take advantage of the people. They'd sell their product. And then before they were too exposed, they would run to the next town. And what's interesting is you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, what you realize, if you read it carefully, is that Paul had been accused of the same kind of thing. That he was just another snake oil salesman who had passed through Thessalonica. And you remember, as we talked about last week, he was driven out of town by his opponents among the unbelieving Jewish leadership. He had been driven out of town, and so he was not able to stay and really establish a church and, and develop the long-term relationship with the church he had hoped. And so what had happened was, as we said last week, Paul was now in Corinth and he had sent Timothy back to the church in Thessalonica to see how it's doing. He was very concerned that as he was driven out by his enemies and those enemies still were entrenched there, he was worried about the condition, concerned about the condition of the church. So he sent Timothy back and Timothy had come back with this glowing report. The church is doing very well, Paul. The Holy Spirit is taking care of them. There's leadership established there. It's doing well. They're spiritually prospering. But you can tell from what he writes here in chapter 2 that Paul was alarmed about the fact that he is being falsely accused of being one of these shysters who had gone through town. He had been falsely accused. And by reading his defense here, you get the kind of, you can easily pick up on what he'd been accused of. His enemies had accused him of spreading lies, of lying about God himself and about his word that they were accusing him of having impure motives for his ministry among the Thessalonians. And they accused him of manipulating people for his own selfish benefit. And they accused him of mooching off the people to gain off of them financially. And so Paul takes time here in chapter 2 to defend himself. And this is not the only place in the New Testament he does this. As a matter of fact, it's kind of remarkable how many times during, in the writings of Paul that he takes time to defend himself against false accusations. And if you're not careful, you can think, well, Paul must be kind of self-centered. I mean, why is he always so concerned about his own reputation? But it's not his reputation he's concerned about. He's concerned about the gospel. He's concerned about the church. And if... God's messenger is being ridiculed and being falsely accused and slandered and lied about and people believe the lies and the false accusations, they're going to start to doubt the message. 
And because of the integrity of the message, because of the necessity of defending the gospel, Paul therefore has to defend his own apostleship, his own integrity, and to share his own heart behind why he did what he did when he brought the word of God to them. And that's what this chapter is about. And as we look more carefully at his defense of himself, what we're going to see are the characteristics of a good shepherd. What does a good leader look like in the church? As Paul asserts his own role. Now, later on, in, in several months down the road, we're going to be looking at how Paul gave specific qualifications for elders and deacons, church leaders, things to look for in the way that they talk, the way they live, the way they, they worship. There's certain characteristics, and he's going to get into a long list of those, and we'll look at those at, at the proper time. But what's striking to me is he doesn't get into those details here. What he talks about is the heart of the shepherd. He's asking the people of Thessalonica to remember his own heart towards them. As they got to know him, as they saw what truly drove him, what truly motivated him to preach the gospel and to minister to them. Again and again and again, he appeals to them as his witnesses, his character witnesses. Notice how many times he does this. In verse 1, he says, for you yourselves know. In verse 2, he says, as you know. In verse 5, he says, as you know. In verse 9, he says, for you remember. In verse 10, he says, you are witnesses. In verse 11, he says, for you know. Remember last week we saw in chapter 1, he talked about the powerful ministry of the Word and the Holy Spirit that took place when Paul came to Thessalonica when he came preaching Jesus Christ. There was a supernatural, mind-blowing experience that the church experienced there as they heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit applied it to their hearts and lives were transformed. And so Paul's appealing to their experience of that, those events. When he brought the word to them, what happened? And so that brings me to the first characteristic of a good leader in the church. And again, we're talking about the heart. Good shepherds exalt and proclaim Christ. A very simple message. Good shepherds proclaim and exalt Christ. Christ crucified and Christ risen from the dead. Good shepherds are all about the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like Paul was. In verse 2, he says, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Not the gospel of Paul, but the gospel of God. He came to bring God's message to God's people. And Paul refers to the suffering for a strategic reason. Not to, to bring about sympathy for him or for Silas, but he reminds them of what he had told them about what he had endured in Philippi, which was the town just before they came to Thessalonica. If you go back to Acts 16, you'll see what happens there, is that he was falsely accused by the owners of a slave girl who would go around following Paul around during his ministry and proclaiming him to be a, a messenger of God. And so he eventually cast the demon out of this slave girl, and then the owners falsely accuse him. They drag Paul before the city authorities and they falsely accuse him before them and so that he is th at that point beaten by the crowd, it says. 
Again, this is an angry mob around him. He's beaten by the crowd. And then after he's beaten by the crowd, the magistrates, the local civil magistrates, strip Paul and Silas and beat them with rods. And then they throw them in prison and put their feet in stocks. All for preaching the gospel and delivering sinners from the power of sin. Paul faced that kind of suffering everywhere he went. He faced that kind of opposition almost everywhere he went. He faced persecution for preaching the gospel. What I'm saying here is that Paul preached Christ no matter what the cost, because that was what he was called to do. 1 Corinthians 9, 16 says, he says, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. A true good shepherd in the church knows what Paul's saying there. Necessity has been laid upon me and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul would rather be beaten by all the civil authorities in every place he went and imprisoned everywhere he went than to be unfaithful to the calling that God had placed upon him to preach Christ, to present Christ to his people. In verses three and four, he says, for our appeal does not spring from error, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. God had called them to take truth to people who desperately needed to hear it. Paul tells his student Timothy later to preach the word. That's the very focus of his exhortation to Timothy, preach the word. And twice, Paul tells Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. See, that's how Paul understood his own role, his own calling, is that he had been entrusted with the perfect message of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament scriptures. That he had, that he was, God himself, who had added to his divine nature a full human nature, had dwelt in our midst, had lived a perfect life according to the law of God, and then offered up his perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross as the wrath of God was poured out upon him as he bore the penalty that our sins deserved. And then God raised him from the dead to confirm that this is the Messiah, this is the Redeemer. He raised him up powerful over sin and death, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he reigns over all things as the King of Kings. That gospel message that is all about Jesus Christ is what Paul had been commissioned to do. Woe to him if he does not preach the gospel. And that gospel is to be guarded as a good deposit from God, to protect it, to make sure that nothing is added to it or taken away from it, that it remains the very center of the message of the church. See, that's what being called to bring the word of God to God's people is all about. That's why ordination is important. Nobody should be self-appointed to preach the word. God entrusts the message through the means of the authority of the church. And it is very important that those who preach and teach the word are trained, are given the skills necessary to handle the word with great care and diligence that they be tested and 
given experience and vetted to the, to the best possible terms so that they, we can be sure as those who are sheep under their care that they have been called by God and entrusted with the good deposit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A good shepherd exalts Christ. He preaches Christ. He teaches Christ. He shares Christ. He disciples people into Christ. Is that the heart of all the shepherds that you're under? Is that what you look for in a spiritual leader? That he's all about Christ. That he is consumed with a passion for presenting Christ to the sheep. That's the most important first priority, the heart of a good shepherd. Second characteristic of a good shepherd that Paul refers to here is that good shepherds are God-pleasers, not man-pleasers. Look at verse four. He says, we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. What he's doing there is recognizing that any leader in the church faces a great temptation to, and it often happens imperceptibly, it becomes a big blind spot in your own ministry that you lose sight of the fact that you are no longer serving the God who has given you this deposit of the gospel. You're no longer, your first priority is to please God, but it becomes to please people. To make people happy with you and your ministry. To make people comfortable with the messages that you're sending and, and, and preaching. Paul's warning to Timothy is given in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, listen carefully to what he says. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. There is going to be, for any leader in the church, this constant tension, this pressure to scratch itching ears of the sheep and the flock, to tell them what they want to hear, to tell them what they will approve of, to lay before them standards that the world will applaud and approve so that their lives can be more prosperous and comfortable in this world. There's always going to be that temptation. The difference between a false prophet and a good prophet is does he stay faithful to the message that God has entrusted into his hands or does he try to modify it to suit the desires and ideas of fallen men? I got a quick lesson on this when I was just beginning in ministry. I came out of seminary in the late 80s and one of the hot theological topics of the day was something called the Jesus Seminar. It was a gathering of liberal scholars, supposedly Christian scholars, the really respectable, intelligent theologians of the day. And they gathered together in a council. And what they wanted to do, the, the stated goal was to find the, the real Jesus of history, the one who really lived in our midst, 
and separate that real Jesus of history, this ordinary human being like you and me, to separate him from the supernatural and superstitious add-ons that uh, the church had, had, had uh, added into their theology over the centuries. And so they went through the Gospels, and it sounds very juvenile and, and ridiculous, but it's, it's simply what they did is they had, a, they had a vote on every statement that Jesus made in the Gospels, and they'd use beads to vote. They had red beads, pink beads, gray beads, and black beads. They would vote with a red bead if, they, if the statement that was read from the Gospels, if they thought, yeah, I think Jesus actually said that in history. He actually, the real man, Jesus actually said that. And then if something was read that they thought, well, he may have said that, but I'm not sure, they would vote with a pink bead. And then if they read something from the Gospels that Jesus said and they thought, no, I don't think he said that, then they'd vote with a gray bead. And if they read something from the Gospels that they said, there's absolutely no way that Jesus said that. And then they'd vote with a black bead. And then they would gather up all these beads and they would tally the results. And the result was to try to get at what, they, what theologians, the really intelligent theologians of the day, felt that was really said by Jesus. You know what was so fascinating by that for those of us who stood off at a distance and read about their results? The results... The things that they say Jesus said, every one of them matched up with two things. The philosophy and worldview and ethics of those theologians and what was the popular trendy thinking of the day. That's what, that's what they kept of what Jesus said. That is the exact opposite of guarding the good deposit that God has given to those who are to lead the church. That is cutting up the word of God and discarding anything in the word of God that doesn't suit the desires and goals and pleasures of fallen men. That's what it is. But that's been going on for a very long time and it's only just gotten worse. In verse five, Paul says, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. You see, what's flattery? Flattery is praising and pleasing others in order to manipulate them for your own selfish purposes. That's what flattery is. And Paul says, you know our ministry. You saw our hearts. We had a relationship with you and you know that we never came and flattered you for our own selfish purposes. And there's a word of warning that a lot of spiritual leaders, those who put themselves in positions of spiritual leadership are good at using flattery. They're good at manipulating. They're good at making you feel like you're important. They're good at making you feel like you're the center of the world, building you up. When you see that happening, run. Because that's not the ministry of the word. Paul and his assistants came to the Thessalonian church, to these, these unbelievers who became believers. He came to them to give to them, not to take from them. And he underlines that, he illustrates it by what he says in verse nine. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. He's proving that they came to give to them, not to take from them, by reminding them that he wouldn't take any financial support from them. Now, it's funny because over in Corinthians, he clearly says that those who preach and teach the word of God have a right to be supported by the church. 
so that they can be free to do that ministry. But he says, and we know from his own practice, clearly from the book of Acts, most of the time he didn't take advantage of that. He didn't take support from, especially from the new churches he was planting. Sometimes he would take support from other established churches that had the resources. He would take their support so that he could minister to churches that were new and developing. But he was a tent maker. It was a hard labor job that he did full time while he was with them. And the rest of the time he spent teaching and ministering and pastoring and shepherding the flock. And he did that so that he may not put any burden on the church. He's saying, he's not doing that to puff himself up. He's saying, obviously, I'm not there to gain anything worldly from you. I was there to serve, to give to you. I didn't want to be any kind of financial burden upon you as I brought you the very word of God. And so again, the lesson for us is, what drives those who lead you? Are they driven for earthly gain? Are they driven for a paycheck? Are they driven by a desire for prestige, to be looked up to, to be made much of? Do they take in the guise of giving? And then the third characteristic of a good shepherd is that last section where Paul talks about loving care. How much a good shepherd cares for the sheep. That's the fruit of being called by God and being faithful to his word is that a good shepherd truly cares for the sheep. He uses a picture in verse seven that is powerful. Probably the most powerful picture, metaphor for concern that we could possibly have, which is the metaphor of a, of a mother caring for her infant child. I'm sure you've seen many moving pictures of new mothers with their infant child. And that's the image he's putting before us in verse 7. One of the most powerful images of that I've ever seen in my life was a, a picture that my oldest daughter took of my youngest daughter when she had her most recent child. As most of you know, uh, my youngest daughter, her, her most recent pregnancy ended with a, a very difficult birth and uh, little baby Judah was born with brain damage. And about a week into his time in the NICU in Pittsburgh, my oldest, my oldest daughter was there with Bethany and she took a picture of Bethany next to the, that ominous plastic box that they put the, the, the baby in. And there's all kinds of wires and monitors and tubes coming out of baby Judah. But Bethany is totally oblivious to all that. She's leaning over him and she's holding Judah's hand as he's laying there in that box so helpless. And the look on her face, uh, look it up on my Facebook page. It's one of the most beautiful, most powerful images of motherhood I've ever seen. This is the deep loving concern that she had for this little helpless child. And that's the image that Paul is getting at in verse 7 when he says, but we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He said, don't you remember? We were even willing not to just to give you the word of God, but to give you ourselves, he says. We invested in you. We gave of ourselves to you. We had this intimate relationship with you. Do not believe what these accusations are saying. And then to complete the picture, Paul also describes his love for them in terms of fatherhood in verses 11 and 12. 
There he says, for you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And I think he is drawing upon, at least in that day and age, in that culture, and certainly coming out of the Old Testament biblical culture, the distinction in the roles between the mother and the father. That the mother was the nurturing, caring, protecting, you know, loving, gentle presence in the child's life. The sacrificial love. And then you had the father whose responsibility focused around teaching and training and disciplining and modeling. Not to say that in a good biblical marriage back then that both carried on both roles, but there did seem to be this emphasis on one to the other. And together, the parents make this wonderful, nurturing, guiding, directing, protecting environment for the child. And Paul says, that's the kind of heart we had for you. We loved you like a mother. We loved you like a father. You are our spiritual children. It reminds me where over in Galatians chapter 4.19, he uses an, an, an interesting twist on that analogy when he says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That's the love of a parent. That's the love of a mother and a love of a father. Good shepherds care for the sheep. See what I'm saying? It's not so much about the characteristics like... Uh, being able to teach and being of, of integrity and those things. We'll talk about those characteristics of leaders later, but Paul's talking here about the heart. And as you get to know the heart of your spiritual leaders, those are the questions you need to ask. When I look at my, my spiritual leaders, are they proclaiming Christ? Do they live to present Christ to me that I might know him and that I might worship him and that I may follow him? Is that what their heart is about? Secondly, is their heart to please God or is their heart to please men? And thirdly and finally, is their heart warm with that kind of parental mother-father love for the sheep? That's what you look for in the heart of those whom are your leaders. But can't end without giving the warning. Your earthly leaders, no matter how good of shepherds they are, they will fail you. They will disappoint you. They will never meet your expectations. They will sin. They will be selfish. But that's why it's so important that they, that they and you understand that their job is to point you to Christ and not themselves. Because earthly leaders will let you down. But if Christ is your focus then you'll know the grace that enables you to forgive your leaders, to be patient with your leaders, to work with your leaders, to seek to encourage and build them up and not tear them down because it's all about Christ. And I pray that the leadership of this church, all the shepherds of this church, will always have the heart that Paul describes in this passage. Let's pray. Father, you are the Lord of our hearts. And so often we get focused on what we do, what we say, outward fruit and symptoms. But Lord, you are the one who truly knows our hearts. And Lord, as we are either shepherds or sheep in the work of the church here this morning, I pray that you help all of us to know our own hearts. Forgive us ways in which we have criticized and torn down leaders. Forgive us for the way in which we as leaders have failed. Forgive us for the selfishness, the worldliness, the love of the things that will pass away. 
Lord, I pray that this kind of a heart of a shepherd that Paul describes would be a characteristic among all who lead here and may it increasingly also be the hearts of those who are led that we all might seek to glorify Christ first, to please him alone and to care for others with the love that he first taught us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.